This is Rebecca Buchanan, co-host of New Book Network's New Books in Popular Culture, and today I am here with Mark Fleischman, the author of Inside Studio 54. Mark, thanks for being here. You're welcome. It's a pleasure. So I'm wondering if you could start by talking a little bit about why you decided to write this book. Well, um, that's sort of a story in, in itself. I, uh, You've read the book, so you know that uh, I used to go to a place that was uh, where I found my redemption after Studio 54, which I'll get into later. And it was called Rancho La Puerta. And um, it's a health fitness resort. And it's not a rehab center, but I used it as my rehab, and as well as Betty Ford. And uh, that's after owning Studio 54 for four years. so I was there, and you sit at community tables at dinner, and uh, people start asking you uh, where you come from and what, what you do, and why do you, how many times have you been here? And I told them about how I would rehab myself and reinvented myself uh, because uh, I really uh, overdid the drugs and alcohol at Studio 54 as the owner. And um, the story kept coming up, and uh, there was one companion who was with me, uh, who was a bar method instructor. And uh, my wife and I own bar methods in Southern California. And so um, uh, I made a deal with Rancho La Puerta to bring the bar method there. And uh, the bar method is an exercise program and uh, very successful. and. Uh, as a real job and so this exercise instructor kept saying you know these are fabulous stories you got to write a book and she kept and we we started laughing about it and it started on a saturday and by wednesday i agreed and i started to um outline my life on paper and uh all of a sudden i was into writing a book and uh uh, I go back to Rancho La Puerta often, and I got inspired there, and uh, finally finally, I got the book out. It took more than five years, but uh, it's a real process to write your first book. Oh, yes. So you start out, this is partially a memoir, but it's partially really historical, too, in situating your experience with um, Studio 54 in this larger sort of history and culture of New York and dance and club culture. And so you start out by sort of telling us of your experience at Studio 54 before you owned it um, to get us to understand why you really wanted to own Studio 54. So could you talk a little bit about those that, you know, your first entrance into Studio 54? What was it about Studio 54 that was really not only you, but drawing all these people in and making it a sort of cultural space that it was? Well, Studio 54 opened in 19... uh... 1977 and it was an immediate hit and um, certain celebrities made it their uh, watering hole their hangout came almost every night i'm talking about uh, andy warhol uh alston calvin klein uh elizabeth taylor barbara streisand uh 
to some extent. Anyway, um, it 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 uh, got international fame uh, very early on. As a matter of fact, uh, it got the international fame when uh, they were doing a birthday party for Bianca Jagger, and uh, they brought a, wild, a white horse in, and she got on the horse and rode into Studio 54. And uh, Studio 54 is a big space. Uh, it, uh, it was a former TV soundstage uh, called Studio 53 for CBS. And so there was room for a horse and also 2,000 people. <laughs> and, uh, and that got worldwide attention in the media and there was no social media then, but uh, it made front page headlines all over the world. And everybody just wanted to get into Studio 54. But it wasn't just because uh, the celebrities were there. It was a fabulous place that made you warm and comfortable, even though you were among 2,000 other people. And uh, the music and lights and dancing and uh, sound system and special effects and sets and plus celebrities all over the place, smoking joints, getting high and letting the hair down like, like no other place like that. Uh, other than, you know, an occasional restaurant. And, um, so they had a door policy and that's what helped make them so hot. Uh, people would wait online or not exactly online, but there would be a crowd in front of Studio 54 every day. And uh, you'd stand there and you, uh, either Steve Rubell, the former owner, of the, uh, one of the originators, and uh, Mark Benecke, the doorman, would pick you. And if you were picked, you smiled and they smiled at you and you get right in. And uh, otherwise people would stand there sometimes for hours trying to get in. And so uh, I opened the book with my first experience in 1977, uh, trying to get in. And uh, I, I did get in, but I bought a beautiful blonde date with me and we waited for a while until we were chosen. And, uh, and being chosen felt fabulous. Uh, it, it, it was almost silly when I look back at it, but uh, uh, everybody in New York wanted to be chosen to get into Studio 54. And uh, this fellow, Steve Rubell, became the arbiter of uh, taste and society in New York for several years. Right, and it's interesting because you also talk about, uh, and this sort of ties in with all of this and the role of New York, you you talk about um, sort of Manhattan and the, sort of the wonder, I don't know if that's the best word to call it, but, but how the importance of Manhattan and how Manhattan sort of influenced you to, and, and you talk about the candy store. But you talk about sort of these bars and these spaces of Manhattan and why just that location was so important to be in and be a part of. 
Can you talk a little bit about your, before you came to Studio 54, to own Studio 54, you were also involved in some other um, nightclubs and, and other work. So can you talk a little bit about that and what brought you to really thinking this was something you wanted? Sure. Um, well, I was a naval officer. I went to Cornell University and studied hotel administration. And uh, they offered me a position in the Navy running officers club, uh, as opposed to being drafted in the Army into the Vietnam War. And so uh, obviously I selected the Navy, even though it was four years. It was a wonderful experience for me. And from the Navy, uh, I was offered a chance to take over a bankrupt's sprawling English-looking inn in uh, Forest Hills, Queens, called the Forest Hills Inn. And that was my first venture, and I described that in the book. And, uh, but, and that was exciting for a while because uh, uh, I made it exciting. And uh, it was near the Forest Hills Tennis Stadium, which uh, held the national which was like the U.S. Open, and I met all the fabulous tennis players, and and then they had the Forest Hills Music Festival, and I met uh, Frank Sinatra and Barbara Streisand, and, and uh, it was all very exciting. And, uh, and I was only 20, 22 years old. Um, but then I started to realize that uh, for my personal entertainment, I would go to Manhattan and all these fabulous discos were opening up. Uh, discotheques like Arthur and uh, Ondine and um, Shepherds and uh, and the discotheques were copies of clubs in Europe that I used to go to from time to time when I went to Europe. And uh, they played records instead of had bands. And uh, it was very exciting and very chic and uh, one of the clubs was uh, Castells in Paris and uh, New Jimmy's in Paris. And uh, I was really taken by these clubs and and all the chic people who used to go there, the Italians and French. And and um, I was, it was just starting to happen in New York. And once it happened, it really happened. And they were opening up all over the place. And and all of a sudden, I realized that I really want to be in Manhattan, not Forest Hills, Queens, almost like Donald Trump. <laughs> Donald Trump uh, came from Queens and developed uh, properties there. And and then he had a yearning for uh, for being in Manhattan and developing. And he he did. And we all know what happened there. Um, Donald Trump, by the way, he used to be a frequenter of Studio 54 and my other clubs afterwards. So the first thing I did when I yearned to be in Manhattan was look for an opportunity. And I used to go to the Copacabana, which was uh, one of New York's hot clubs. And um, at the Copa, I met a man named Larry Matthews, who owned a chain of all night beauty parlors eventually all over the country. And uh, we started talking and he realized that I was a professional in the uh, hospitality industry. And he said, you know, I have a space 
that in Manhattan, Midtown on 55th Street, which is in the center of Midtown Manhattan. And uh, I'd love to have somebody think of a good idea. I had a good idea because uh, Candy Johnson, who was the uh, gal who used to do the shimmy and do the dancing in the Beach Blanket Bingo movies, and the Frank, uh, Frankie Avalon and Annette Funicello, uh, was staying at the Forest Hills Inn during the World's Fair in 64 and 65. And, um, and she didn't know what to do when the World's Fair was just over in the, it was just the summertime. So I said to her, how about we open a nightclub in New York? And it all clicked and came together, and I put candy in, and we called it the candy store. And we opened there, except I had this unbelievable experience because the candy store was really owned by the mafia. And Larry Matthews was backed by the mafia, and I didn't know that. And uh, so that was my first experience. That was the only one that was the closest I ever got. But... uh, it's uh, it was it was a little scary at the time, and I backed away from it finally and moved her moved her out to Spain. Um, so, but it was very successful, and we had long lines waiting to get in, and and I really got the taste of a successful nightclub in New York. Being a nightclub owner is uh, is a, a fabulous thing when the nightclub is successful. Right. And so one of the things before owning Studio 54 in New York, you had a successful sort of Studio 54 offshoot. And so can you talk a little bit about that, setting up that deal and the work you did in? It was in St. Thomas Virgin Islands. Yeah. Um, the way that worked, uh, I was... Uh, Somebody approached me, a real a realtor approached me about taking over a hotel that was closed in St. Thomas. It was the old Virgin Isle Hilton. And they closed because of troubles in St. Thomas in uh, 1994, uh, 19, uh, in the early 80s. Uh, and they closed in, uh, what am I saying, in their early 70s. And uh, confusing because I led a long life and did a lot of things. Um, anyway, uh, the hotel was closed and I went down and looked it over and thought I could take it over and do something interesting with it. Um, had 250 rooms and, uh, it was a good deal. Uh, although sometimes things are, look like a good deal and you have to work very hard to make it work. Um, uh, and so, uh, we opened and uh, we had some engine physical problems in the beginning, overcame them, uh, but needed something to really kick it off. And this was 1978. And I went to Steve Rubell and Ian Schrager to ask them if they would like to have me open a uh, franchise of Studio 54 in St. Thomas. And they dawdled for a while and, they were really busy and uh, they didn't answer right away. And uh, I then went to a competitor and started working with a competitor, uh, Xenon, about opening a Studio 54, uh, about opening a Xenon. And then 
one day I read that they got busted. And they were caught with uh, two sets of books and millions of dollars in cash and garbage bags. And, and I knew that it was really the beginning of the end for them. And so I sort of waited until they plea bargained and, um, and they were going to jail. And I went back to them and said, I'd like to buy Studio 54 in New York to keep it open because you're going to lose your liquor license, which they did. And um, we were in the middle of working on the other disco in St. Thomas. And uh, all of a sudden they went to jail and uh, they were convinced that I was the right guy to take it over because I was clean and had been a naval officer and Cornell Hotel School and no uh, problems with the law. And so uh, we made a deal to buy Studio 54. I made a deal. And at the same time, uh, decided to convert the, the disco in St. Thomas into a Studio 54. So my first experience with Studio 54 was actually in St. Thomas. And we opened a club there, and it was very hot. And it did help the hotel. It was everything I thought it was going to be. And uh, I made a deal with the guy who uh, I was going to open with and uh, paid him $50,000 to get out of my contract. And uh, that was a whole story because uh, there's no time to tell them all. But uh, he was very upset because he didn't want me to open Studio 54 in New York. And he went to court. And, uh, was unsuccessful in getting a restraining order, but I did have to settle with him, and I settled and paid him some cash. So, um, so the Studio Fifty Four in New York did close down. I brought the staff down, the key members of the staff, and they helped me open the Studio Fifty Four in St. Thomas, and uh, and uh, it was very, it was extremely successful. And then ultimately, they all went back and ultimately a year and a half later, I got a liquor license and we opened Studio 54 New York. Right. And so I'd love for you to talk a little bit about that opening night and then maybe we can get into one of the things that happened was you started or reopened Studio 54 in New York at this time when, when, and you talk about this when that idea that disco was dead. And so you really had to transform this into a nightclub and getting people really think about this as a place to dance, to bring people in. And, and you had some really innovative ideas about how to do that and how to make sure you had people in there every night. So could you um, start by, you know, maybe talking a little bit about that opening night and, and how that was and then and then sort of your challenges moving forward. Sure. Uh, well, disco, I guess the disco industry started in 1975. And uh, it was the disco industry was the music industry uh, and the records were disco records. And it was a certain kind of music with a certain kind of beat and very danceable. And um, they opened all over the country, discos. Uh, and then all of a sudden, I think in 1979, uh, people got tired of it. And there were some articles about disco being dead. And people, uh, the 
friends of mine were coming over to me and knew that I had a contract to open Studio 54. And they were saying, well, what are you going to do that for? Uh, you know, this goes dead. And I started to think about it at the time and realized that Studio 54 was just another big, huge dancehall that had these fabulous characteristics that I spoke about earlier. And uh, it was just a type of music. And the music wasn't really dead because people loved the songs, I Will Survive and Enough is Enough. And and so, uh, but also before that, people were dancing to uh, CV Wonder and uh, Satisfaction and Beatles and Rolling Stones. And uh, so I knew deep in my heart that I didn't, I didn't have to worry about it. I could open studio 54 and just attract people who really love to dance because basically it was a dance hall. I, you know, I had a year and a half to think about it and uh, I did some research and, uh, and realized that uh, the research was some of my own experiences, but, uh, dancing has been popular all over the world for centuries, years, uh, going back to, you know, to natives who dance to, uh, to drums and uh, natives in Africa, Indian. Uh, anyway, uh, I did it. I just said the hell with, you know, all these naysayers and I, I decided to open, and uh, the crowd in New York, there was nothing, nothing ever replaced Studio 54 when it closed. It closed in uh, early 19, very early 1980, and I opened September 1981. And in that time, you'd think that something would have happened in New York because something always does, and people always fill in niches, and uh, it didn't. No big clubs opened and nothing major happened. And, and so in studio, there was a lot of pent up anxiety about getting, you know, getting back to Studio 54. And so uh, the night I opened, we sent out 5,000 invitations and 10,000 people came. Normally you send out 5,000 invitations and if you get 1,000, you're lucky. And uh, they stormed the block. The police closed it down. The fire department was there. Uh, a lot of people, we let just about all the celebrities in, but uh, it turned out that Jack Nicholson and Mary Tyler Moore couldn't get in uh, because the fire department wouldn't let them in. Uh, naturally, we wanted them and we wanted everybody, but uh, it was it was really quite a, quite a scene and... Uh, it was uh, all of a sudden there was press the following day and, you know, the press was Studio 54 is back. And but it wasn't really uh, because Studio 54 used to have a crowd every night and I didn't have a crowd every night when I first opened. It was, the opening night was one thing. But uh, after that, uh, people didn't, you know, on a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, they just didn't. They're patterns of life were different and they started to the eighties were more of a working pattern and people were busy trying to become very successful and make money. And, and so, um, I had to figure that out. And what I did is I contacted 
every major star in New York, uh, Broadway musical stars, uh, sports stars, writers, and I asked them if they wanted me to give them a party. And for 30 or 40 straight nights, I gave a free party to a celebrity, a New York celebrity, uh, occasionally a movie star, but uh, mostly they weren't available yet. And uh, most people want a free party, you know, they give me a mailing list and we went out to them and mailed, mailed their invitations, they handed them out and uh, they would come in the back door and it was a, uh, it was called a cut drop party. And they would come in the back private entrance, which is a stage entrance, basically. And they would have a private party behind a scrim, uh, which is a curtain that you could see through. And uh, that was the cut drop. And it was a drop. It was a drop in the middle of a dance floor that dropped down. And you knew that if you were in front of the drop and you were paid admission coming in the front door, you could see that there was some activity behind the, the, the scrim, the see-through scrim. But uh, and you knew a star was there or a couple of stars. And uh, it made everything exciting. And people knew that, that we were doing a party for, uh, say, Liza Minnelli. And, uh, and she would invite her friends. And uh, we would give them free drinks and free admission. And uh, after about... Uh, Two months, it happened by itself, and all of a sudden, people got in the habit of coming out to Studio Fifty Four, and uh, we did different things uh, uh, because people wanted to be with their friends. We would do certain nights that were theme nights, and so um, uh, Tuesday night was uh, preppy night. And uh, Wednesday night was, uh, I, I got Jerry Rubin, who uh, was a yippie who turned yuppie and uh, was networking and needed a big space. And so he actually invited 5,000 people and 2,000 people would come on a Wednesday night between 5 and 9 p.m. and network. They would pass business cards back and forth. And uh, he was successful because people just wanted to get into Studio 54 and they didn't want to be hassled, uh, you know, by somebody picking and choosing. They just, if they got in line, they got in. And so, and that was, he would get 2,000 or so people and about 1,000 would stay and another 1,000 would come and, and we would end up with a 2,000 person Wednesday night, which worked. And then Thursday night was uh, models and photographers, and it was part gay, uh, very, very uh, chic model agencies, uh, photographic uh, photographers who uh, who shot the models and who uh, were in vogue and cosmopolitan, etc. And uh, that became a night that really worked. And Friday turned out to be a uh, sons and daughters of famous people, such as uh, Ben Stiller and uh, 
and Cecilia and Anthony Peck, who were uh, Gregory Peck's children, and um, and they made up a night. Uh, young, young, new celebrities. Uh, at the time, um, that group included uh, mm, some hot new designers and. Uh, so that brought in its own crowd, and then Saturday night was, uh, we called it Bridge and Tunnel Night, but uh, that's the night that uh, everybody from the boroughs all wanted to come into Studio 54, and uh, so a massive amount of people came, and uh, we did pick and choose. Uh, we continued the picking and choosing, uh, which was sort of part of the culture, and uh, we were... Uh, we got a good-looking crowd by picking and choosing. Well-dressed, uh, cool, some crazy people. Uh, when I say crazy, I mean uh, dressed outlandishly. And uh, then Sunday night, we created a gay night. And that was a very, very hot night. Uh, discotheques in New York, the best ones over the years, from 1975 on, were gay Uh The music actually started the gay uh, started in the gay community, and uh, so that really was uh, an amazing night. And and Monday was uh, corporate private parties, and that that made us that made it happen. That made us financially successful and. Uh, and successful in the press, and uh, we were uh, we we booked a lot of interesting uh, movie openings, and uh, Conan the Barbarian and Arnold Schwarzenegger came, with, uh, Maria Shriver, and uh, got a huge amount of press, and Psycho Two with Anthony Perkins, and uh, and each time we did it, we would uh, we would decorate. Especially uh, with uh, Psycho, we created uh, in the entranceway, uh, which and uh, I show in the book uh, a picture of the entranceway, which is very beautiful and elegant. Uh, and we would do all kinds of uh, crazy things, like uh, the Psycho night. We uh, had uh, ten showers with naked boys and girls inside the shower, uh, almost naked. We did whatever we could get away with. And, uh, and uh, people remembered, of course, Psycho, you know, the shower scene. Most everybody remembered that. And, uh, on Conan, the staff wore loincloths, and uh, we, had, uh, we had scenes that made it look from from, from uh, prehistoric times, and uh, uh, we did one for Tina Chow and, uh, of the uh, restaurant chain Chow's, uh, my, uh, and we created a uh, a scene of uh, of a Chinese bazaar. So you had to wander through, and, and it was very expensive doing these things. So we, I mean, we would spend ten thousand uh, dollars, which at the time was a lot of money. Uh, creating a scene, and uh, but it all paid back because people were just loved being part of such a thing. 
Right. And it seems like you, in reading your book, that you were able also to get a large variety of people in there, right? And you sort of talk about these different nights and that there was something that appealed to everyone so that it wasn't this very niche market. But instead, you had, you talk a lot about Rick James, which I'd love to hear some, you know, some of your Rick James stories. But, you know, you have Rick James alongside of Barbara Streisand, right? So you have this like large mix of celebrities that you normally wouldn't see together but it sort of worked really well and they they you know and studio 54 made made that sort of happen and made those connections well the celebrities who liked to party actually became friends with one another uh when i say party i'm talking about drugs uh, cocaine and cocaine and champagne and um quaaludes and um they it turned them on, and um, and they would gather together often in my office, and um, we would lay out lines, and people would start talking, and and um, once you start doing drugs like that, uh, you also uh, become very talkative, and um, and so people people who would not normally even think about hanging out with somebody became friends and they shared stories and um, and sometimes this went to seven eight nine ten in the morning in the office studio closed at five but uh, some people didn't want to leave and they would just hang out and uh, and then around nine o'clock go outside and rub their eyes and realize they were outside and uh, and people are scurrying to work, and they're just uh, staggering to go home uh, or back to the hotel if they were from out of town. Um, Rick James came to studio when I first opened, and uh, we seemed to hit it off really well. And then we found out that we were both born on February 1st, so we started having joint birthday parties. And... Uh, he invited me to go tour with him sometimes. I invited him to St. Thomas. Uh, but I went out and toured with him uh, to uh, Nashville and L.A. And it was an amazing thing being backstage and seeing that show and then watching the people freak out, you know, the groupies and the girls hanging out there. and A lot of sex. A lot of drugs and a lot of fun. Well, this is one of the things, and I don't know if you want to talk a little bit about this or not, but you, part of this book is that your um, journey through addiction and drug use and drug abuse, and but this was also uh, a time that pre-AIDS, right, with the early 1980s, People were a lot more free with um, drug use and casual, like being like having casual sex throughout the club. There was a lot more availability of things, I think, with a lot less um, concern about what could happen, and and that really made you allowed you to be able to continue just leading that life, right? You need cocaine to get you up, playlists to get you down. So, do you want to talk at all about that or a little bit? Sure. 
Sure. That was a major part of my life. And uh, and I think about that all the time now because uh, I live in L.A. and I go to the Rancho La Puerta and I work out. And I, I moved to L.A. because I really wanted to get away from that New York scene. And um, I also had a business interest. And, uh, and the woman I was going to marry uh, was out here, although I didn't know at the time I was going to marry her. But... Um, uh, I, uh, drugs was so free and my job was, uh, everybody, so major celebrities came to nightclubs knowing that they were going to get, uh, free cocaine. Now they get free drinks. They, they got free drinks too, but, uh, but they wanted their cocaine and some wanted quaaludes and, uh, whatever it was, I had a habit. And so, uh, I actually bought my, I bought enormous amounts of cocaine uh, to distribute. I never sold any, but uh, I would give it free. And, um, and I bought it in St. Thomas. Uh, and I bought it by the kilo in St. Thomas because uh, St. Thomas was an, an American island where somebody could bring it in by speedboat from another island. And then you could fly into New York and not be searched because it was a U.S. possession. And so that was a peculiar thing that enabled me to get cocaine and not have to buy it on the street for a lot of money. And I forgot the amount, but uh, uh, a gram of coke would cost uh, $100. And uh, I was buying the equivalent of a gram of Coke for $5, something like that. And so I was able to really give it out. And also, I obviously started doing it myself. And I was there five, six nights a week. And other people came two, three nights. And uh, so after six nights a week for three years, I became addicted to cocaine and quaaludes and being high and uh, drinking and uh, you almost couldn't help it. And uh, it really adversely affected my life. And uh, after about three years, uh, my former girlfriend, uh, who was my first wife, and my best friend, who was a doctor, uh, who specialized in drug addiction, came and uh, forced me to go to the Betty Ford Center. I, I had sold Studio Fifty because I was so out of it, and I didn't want to. I didn't want to want to own it or think about it anymore. And it was a good time to sell it because it was uh, AIDS had just popped up, and and business fell because of AIDS, and people were afraid to. In the beginning, sitting sit on a toilet seat because they had no idea how it was spread. Uh, but uh, so I sold it in 1984, and in '85 I went to Betty Ford, and uh, I detoxed there. But uh, I really didn't fully appreciate the uh, the counseling. Uh, most of the counselors were fat former alcoholics who uh, who smoked a lot of cigarettes and who just gave advice. And, and I thought I was different. 
because I didn't have the psychological problems that many of the people have, uh, you know, when you sit in a room telling your stories. And uh, my problem was I own Studio 54. And, uh, I got addicted accidentally. But uh, it doesn't matter how you get addicted. Being addicted is being addicted. And so I had to break it. And um, uh, I described the uh, scene at Betty Ford where they took away my suitcase and <laughs> searched everything and uh, and uh, had no drugs and no women and no nothing. And uh, I was addicted to sex and drugs and alcohol. And uh, at Betty Ford, I had none of them. And that was six weeks. And finally, I went back home and uh, I actually started drinking again accidentally and so eventually and I was not happy and eventually somebody said to me try Rancho La Puerta and there on top of a magical mountain called Mount Kuchima which means exalted high place in in the Indian language uh, the Kumayai Indians uh, whom I met several of them uh, and the shamans used to go to this mountain to uh, uh, to uh, get educated. And uh, the mountain felt spiritual, and uh, I was on top of the mountain and realized that I, I needed to find something to do because there was something missing in my life. And what was missing was I liked owning a club, and I liked the feeling of... Uh, either a restaurant or a club or people who I could uh, relate to. And and uh, and so I went back to New York, went there several times, went back to New York and realized that uh, after speaking to a lot of people that uh, the, the experience of Studio 54 was now missing in New York. And, uh, but people didn't want to go to a big nightclub like, uh, studio. So I found a space that held 250, 300 people and with high ceilings, it was very elegant and uh, unsuccessful. And, uh, that was my thing throughout my life, taking over failed properties that uh, just didn't have the right concept. And I created a tattoo. And I write about that in the book and tattoo is a bugle call at sunset uh, in the Navy, T-A-T-T-O-O, uh, -T -T and it came from the English uh, Army, uh, and that was the call to the, at the end of the day, call to the bar, and uh, so I agree, I, I like the name and I like the feeling, but uh, I didn't want it confused with a tattoo parlor, so I gave it the French spelling of T-A-T-O-U, and uh, it hit. Great food, good dancing, good music, uh, private club upstairs, uh, and that was probably the first of the... Uh, a magazine described me as the father of the American, of the American Supper Club, the new American Supper Clubs, because there had been Supper Clubs in the 20s and 30s. But uh, all of a sudden, there weren't any. And the Supper Club is a place where you dine and you dance. Uh, and so I kept that up and opened one in uh, 
Los Angeles and ended up staying out here in Tokyo and uh, Aspen, Colorado, and towards the end of the book. Then I got involved in another club called the Century Club, and uh, that was the beginning of hip hop. And uh, I remember I really I loved the music, and I really had a fight with the police because LAPD was really against clubs that uh, featured hip hop music, and they thought uh, not like that anymore. But it was, and LAPD was impossible to deal with, and. Uh, they uh, they harassed me unmercifully, but uh, I got through it. And then um, then I ended up. Uh, my wife ended up uh, talking me into investing in a new concept called the Bar Method, which is an exercise studio that uh, uh, based upon uh, ballet exercises, mostly women. Uh, we opened one in LA and opened a second one and some stars started to come including uh, Drew Barrymore and and uh, she was on the cover of People Magazine mentioned us and we took off and I franchised 12 more of them throughout Southern California from uh, San Diego to Santa Barbara and that's what I'm doing now and you ended the book, right, because we've been talking for a while, so we can come in, but you end the book with this idea, I think the chapter is the Studio 54 effect, and you talk about how even though people think of Studio 54 and often connected to sex drugs, but that there's more to it, right? There, There's a larger connection, and so are there any sort of... Um, final memories or thoughts or, or that you have about Studio 54 and what that time meant for you as well as for some of the other people who participated in that, um, that space and that culture? Well, it turns out that um, in, in, in that chapter, I talk about the people who die and the people who go to the, you know, who take off and become extremely successful. And um, a lot of the people at Studio 54, maybe they were generally successful to begin with, but, uh, and I can't say that Studio 54 made them successful, but uh, many careers were sort of launched by the press that they got being at Studio 54 and hanging out with uh, Diane Van Persenberg and uh, Calvin Klein and Barbara Streisand, let's say. Uh, and they were photographed and pictured in newspapers and magazines. and uh, uh, So that chapter was sort of based upon, I actually switched them around. The book used to be called The Studio 54 Effect, and, and I changed it to Inside Studio 54. Uh, I kept that chapter because I wanted to tell people what happened to everybody. Uh, and uh, what happened to me and what happened to... Uh, to most of the clientele, and I, I really go into what happened to um, some of the more famous people and some of the people who were just uh, record producers, and and uh, they became many people who used to hang out at Studio Fifty Four till six or seven or eight in the morning, uh, or would take off and go to uh, all night clubs with me. There was a group called the Dawn Patrol, which I described. Um, 
They became very successful. Uh, maybe they were popular, positive people to begin with who were very sociable and who knew how to sell themselves and their product. But uh, uh, they became very successful. And obviously, people, they stopped doing drugs or they did it more moderately. And, uh, and then some people uh, died like Andy Gibb and Vetus Gerolitis and uh, Rick James, who uh, people tortured their bodies and they didn't stop. And they didn't, you know, I, I, I met Rick years later in Los Angeles and uh, he was still doing drugs. And uh, I told him, you know, you know, I was clean and it was hard to be with him uh, at the time because uh, druggies have a way of uh, acting a certain way and uh, and if you don't do it, you don't want to socialize with them. And, uh, and I also tried to get him to stop and he wouldn't. And he, he died, he had a stroke. But uh, uh, I'm very against doing uh, illicit drugs. I know people do it, and I know it goes on today, and uh, and I'm, uh, I drink some wine, and I drink a little tequila now and then because I go to Mexico a lot, but uh, uh, I, I like to keep myself centered, know where I am and who I am. And so, like I said, we've been talking for a while, so I don't know if there's anything else you'd like to add about the book, if there's any last story or something that we sort of, I know we can't cover everything because you go into a lot of detail and a lot of depth, um, but I don't know if there's anything that we missed that you wanted to make sure to mention or talk about. Well, there were inside stories about uh, famous people like Robin Williams, uh, John Belushi, uh, Dodi Fayette. Um, and you have to read the book to really get into it because it would, it would take several hours to really go into each one of these stories. But uh, they're good stories. And, uh, yes, I agree. <laughs> no, and that's what I liked about it, that you gave sort of your history, but you also sort of shared some insight into um, some of your experiences with these people and with being in Studio 54 and sort of how that facilitated um some some strong memories for you as well as others. Right. So, um, do you, I still, yes, yeah, I still, I still think of things now that I forgot to put in the book, but uh, there'll be another book. Uh, I think the book is going to be called Confessions of a Nightclub Owner. So that was my last question for you is, are you thinking about working on something new or what are you doing? So are you thinking about or working on another book then? I am. Uh, what I did, I... I edited out so many stories. The, the book ended up being seven or 800 pages if I put it all together, everything I wrote. And uh, you can't sell a book like that. You know, with the pictures, you can, 450 pages is, a, you know, anything a publisher will accept. So I cut so much out. But uh, I had some experiences in Japan and Europe. And uh, uh, so I'm going to write another book. Half of it's written already. There you go. 
Well, Mark, it's been really great talking with you. This is Mark Fleischman, who wrote Inside Studio 54. And this was uh, for New Books Network, New Books and Popular Culture. Thank you, Mark. You're very welcome. It was a pleasure talking to you.